Hello and welcome to the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day with a podcast about some of the ideas that will be up in the air and up for discussion at the 2017 Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. And this year's theme, a highly topical one, growth and inclusive prosperity. With me, one of the forum participants, Julia Hobsbawm, author, commentator and networker. She's based in London. She's the founder of the knowledge network firm Editorial Intelligence. In 2011, she became the world's first professor of networking at the Cass Business School in London. Julia, what's so special about networking? The thing that really interested me about networking was how poorly understood it was in terms of practice and management in a modern era and how little the relationship between the social science of networks is applied to the way businesses approach networking. So put at its simplest, most businesses and organisations believe that networking is an entirely short-term, transactional, pop-up, conference-based, work-the-room, business card thing. And of course, the evidence shows pretty much the opposite, that there is a more lateral gain from networking rather than a linear one, that it takes time to build relationships, that networking is not in fact transactional, it's more nebulous. So I'm interested in everything from the practical side of networking and networks to the philosophical and in fact the social mobility question of it, which is that networking is often seen as being the preserve of elites. Bring digital into this. Things have changed so much with digital, a great disruption or a great reorganisation of networks. Suddenly they're made manifest, they're global and they're uh, multifold. I think it's important to remember that we remain with what I would call a hierarchy of communication, which is what you and I are doing now and what your listener is doing, is using the intimacy of face-to-face or face-to-voice one-to-one rather than one-to-many. And that intimacy risks being usurped by the belief that the more people you communicate with on social networks rather than, if you like, face-to-face in a Facebook world, the better. I believe that the hierarchy of communication tells us that we must maintain a sufficient quantity of small personal relationships and the anthropology and sociology bears this out if you like the famous Dunbar number of Robin Dunbar at the University of Oxford proving that around about 150 number of relationships is what the average human individual can hold that's in direct contrast to the volume and scale of social networks. So I'm not a Luddite, I'm not anti-technology, but I believe that we mistake the ease and the technological reach of social networks for the way we benefit most from actually having, nurturing, building our own personal networks. We are at a hugely important pivot moment where the individual and the human in organisations which are changing beyond all recognition have to, if you like, make their peace with the scale and the machine and the limitlessness. So there is a very interesting historical window that you can say is about 150 years old, the point at which 
the original cables of connectedness were laid underground between Newfoundland and Ireland by Thomas Alva Edison in 1857 and today, an era in which we are so embedded in networks, we don't just live and work on them. And that moment has also been usurped by an even more recent era of what the sociologists Lee Rainey and Barry Wellman in Toronto call the triple revolution of internet, social and mobile. And that's actually less than a generation old. And in that, you've got an excess of information and knowledge. So you have a crisis in trust, you have a crisis in people consuming actually much narrower forms of media and information rather than broader forms in order with to this, With this echo effect exactly. compounding that. So groupthink and fake news, these are not actually new things. They're at least 10 to 15 years old. The risk elements could have been predicted at least 25 years ago. So you have an excess of information. You have a very imprecise, unregulated approach to networks themselves. So people live on networks which which includes strangers, friends, colleagues, family, some of those relationships you can track through and have emails for in an an old-fashioned address book, some you can't. And there is an almost surprising to me lack of strategy about how we cope with these very fundamental modern excesses against a background of something in which we are all universally deficient, which is time. Well, I could say to you, in answer to that, that it's a generation thing. I believe that baby boomers and the Gen Xs are far more at risk of coping with the age of overload than the Ys and the Zs. At risk? At risk of being overwhelmed and overloaded and being unproductive. And my concern for business and for the corporation is that no matter how fast they bring in and recruit Gen Y and Gen Z, the structures managerially and at board level remain a different generation. And therefore the practices around the way information is managed, the way networks are approached is in fact much less modern than it needs to be. The young are actually intellectually at risk of far greater silo thinking than those of us that know that you need a rich diet of information and ideas. So the young do read less books than they used to. They watch everything. They pick up their information from social network. It's all to do with the theme of the the Drucker Forum this year, prosperity, and what I call, even though it's a troublesome word, productivity. Productivity globally is stagnant. It's about 1.2%. It hasn't risen despite all of this hyper-connectivity. And I think that's a problem. I think that is a dysfunction in the economy, in the culture, in the corporation, and that's really what my work addresses, is why is there that dysfunction when we are so surrounded by an abundance of networks and information and a deficit of time? The new book is called Fully Connected, Surviving and Thriving in an Age of Overload. So this is your second thoughts about the efficacy of digital always-on networking compared with the networking that you were so at home with when you started thinking about it? The book's actually about three things. One is it's about the human being's relationship with technology and probably one of the most popular features of the book that's been 
endlessly replayed is my idea of a techno Shabbat, of a seventh day of the week in which one simply unplugs and becomes much more connected to physical existence. So part of the book does address the relationship between the human and the machine because that is undeniably a challenge. The relationship between the human and the technology is a theme which I address. The second issue I do address is the workforce and the workplace and I'm hugely interested in the evolving of the office, the move to a much larger global freelance workforce. A third of Americans will be freelance by 2030 and so on. And I'm very interested in how technology can in fact be used to help us redesign human systems of collaboration and output. And the third thing the book addresses is the concept of, of what I call social health, which is a way of analysing and assessing the ingredients of connectedness for individuals and organisations and saying in exactly the same way that the diet, fitness, wellness industry has sort of grown up post-Second World War and has a lexicon and has an industry and has an economy, we need a similar narrative for healthy functional connectedness around how we use our knowledge, our networks, in the time frames and the time that is available and that if we don't do that then as a society we will lack what I call social health. One of the themes of the Drucker forums that I've been to seems always to be the fact that many of the speakers think that big international corporations simply don't get it. They are still, to caricature it, 20th century organisations in a 21st century world. And you're kind of saying that, aren't you? I absolutely am saying that with great regret. One of the things I still to this day find exciting about Peter Drucker's ideas and writing is he was very practical. He put much more emphasis on the idea of process and practicality than some sort of airy-fairy idea of leadership. And I think that part of the problem for the corporation is it isn't agile enough, it isn't direct enough, it doesn't say what does success look like, it doesn't pilot things, it doesn't experiment with failure, it doesn't do a lot of things, but I am absolutely a glass-half-full optimist. I think that the corporation has never been more ready to face change and to embrace it, and my ideas have actually been knocking around since 2011, but here we are in 2017, and suddenly they're gaining traction. So... It's a good moment, actually, for social health to become something that is discussed and, far more importantly than discussed, actually practised. We have effectively created, over the last 10, 20 years, a new nervous system for the world, a new hugely networked nervous system and data flows and Mm. cloud computing and particularly the Internet and goodness knows what's coming along next are part of this new nervous system and it is very liable through hackers or through sheer mechanical failure to have a nervous breakdown at some time, and the effects will be worldwide profound. I agree completely, and in fact one sees this in short 
episodes all the time. My book actually opens with the 2014 outbreak of Ebola in West Africa because I think it is an extremely instructive parable of the way political networks can be dysfunctional. Epidemiological spread of a disease is in fact highly instructive in terms of the way humans have to be organised and behave. And the economic network system, which is at its simplest, you had a lot of African nations coming out of war wanting to present an open for business face to the world and the last thing they wanted to do was the only thing they had to do was to quarantine their nations until the disease spiralled out. And so what you do get is where you have an excess of networks, where you have what network scientists call a spreading rate that becomes, in an epidemic sense, scale-free, which you could apply to the internet, to certain terrorist credos, as well as to contagious diseases. You absolutely have the problem, which is what happens when it either shuts down through malign activities or you have to cut it off. And it is going to happen this no doubt about it. We can't take precautions against it. It It is going to happen. But in fact my contention is that in all of these discussions about what technology can do AI, robotics hyper-networked systems driverless cars, you name it we must make sure that the human being feels enabled and empowered to manually with communication, with process, with very Peter Drucker-like attitudes, cope. When technology fails, we will be left with ourselves. This year's forum theme, Growth and Inclusive Prosperity, seems to me to be particularly topical because of the Brexit vote in Britain, because of the rise of President Trump in the USA. This dissatisfaction with Maybe the connected classes, actually, the people who've been dispossessed by the rise of clever people and feel very left behind and are now voicing that left behindness in the way they vote. They're unincluded, and they're unincluded in quite a lot of things, including maybe networks. I agree completely, and in fact, my um, argument is that when you look at the science of networks... The structure is actually inanimate. It's the behaviour, the action, the direction, the choices, the decisions that are made on those networks that make the difference. And whether you are in a town ghetto with a culture of criminality and drugs, whether you are in a prison cell surrounded by propaganda about terrorism, I'm generalising obviously here, not everyone in prison does this, not everyone in a tower block, or whether you are around a political cabinet table where you all have the same academic background or whether you have been a subprime trader where there has been an abiding groupthink. What all the network science shows is that the answer, the key, the future is diversity, is inclusivity and that requires the same sort of reframing and restructuring that is going to be disruptive but is also highly exciting. My view is we haven't even begun to try some of the things that Peter Drucker espoused, which is you make incremental changes, you make directed choices around behaviours to see what works. There's a lot that could work that we are not trying. So I remain optimistic, even though you have to go through the disruptive moment to get there.
But a lot of the technology that we now take for granted is very much in the hands of a small group of people in a particular place, Silicon Valley or Boston, USA or Seattle, a small group of people driven by technology who have ideas which they think can conquer the world. They think everybody thinks like they do, don't they? I'm quite a harsh critic of what I call silico-evangelism. I speak as somebody who is as connected to her iPhone as the next person. I run a business that relies on digital technology. So again, I'm not exactly a Luddite. And yet, and but, I am deeply suspicious of a narrative that has been fueled, in fact, by an obsession with one kind of growth and one kind of growth alone for about the last 30 years, of which Silicon Valley has been the poster child. And I do think there needs to be a reclamation of approach and attitudes. And funnily enough... For all the criticism of them, I think the banks are looking at this very interestingly. I think the consultancies are looking at this very interestingly. I think some of the large institutions and indeed the manufacturers are looking at this question of what really does a connected economy, a connected community look like? And it's going to look extremely different to how it's been in the past. It cannot be about elites behaving in an elitist way, being uniformly educated in a single source place. We have to have a totally different, more agile, flexible, dare I say temporary structure in order to capitalise and grow and be inclusive. So I think one has to make pretty big strategic changes, but in small, incremental, experimental ways. Well, you mentioned the banks then. You mentioned great big manufacturers like the car companies. Isn't capitalism looking a bit tarnished at the moment, particularly to the people who thought they were participating over the last 50 years in national prosperity rising, all boats all boats rising at the same time, found they weren't doing that in the last 30 years. And then we get companies behaving badly, very badly indeed, like the banks, like the car companies cheating on their emissions data. And I could go on with a list of tarnished capitalists. Uh, Is capitalism up to the job? I certainly think that there is, back to the idea of a correlation of fitness, wellness, functionality and what I call social health. If you have people working in industries where they basically don't like their jobs and they don't really respect the consumers of their product, they're going to behave badly. If there is, in other words, a disconnect at the heart of any organisation, large or small, and usually when you see epic fail and dysfunction, it's either scale or it is disaffection and disconnection from what really matters. I don't think banking is inherently malignant. I don't think consultancies or car manufacturing is inherently malignant. But the way they compartmentalise and departmentalise and get away from what the consumers, those lauded consumers, are most most important asset, really want, the way they get away from those, there's something funny about the way a modern corporation works. I think we all need to understand that we are operating in a dysfunctional way around our connectedness to who we are, to who we know, to what we know. And I believe that if we start to nibble at the edges of culture change, you're going to see a different form of leadership emerging, a different form of diversity and inclusion emerging, and a different form of politics emerging. 
Many thanks to Julia Hobsbawm, author, commentator and networker, founder of Editorial Intelligence and the recent author of the book Fully Connected. She's one of the people who will be speaking at the 9th Annual Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. More podcasts coming up soon.